Good morning and welcome back to Looking Backwards, Looking Forwards. I'm C. Thomas Printer. Today, Looking Backwards, Joe Biden's administration has canceled oil leases in the Arctic. That's right. This week, the Interior Department canceled seven oil and gas leases in Arctic Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, the ANWR, and moved to limit development on 13 million additional acres. Secretary Deb Haaland boasted President Biden is delivering on the most ambitious climate and conservation agenda in history. Well, it is also very destructive. Unfortunately, if you've been noticing, the crude oil price is now over $90 on Brent and we are starting to see gasoline prices go up as well. However, this is what's curious and what loophole they used to get this done. The 2017 GOP tax reform mandated two lease sales within the coastal plain of the ANWR. The first occurred in January 2021, and the second is required to be held before December 22nd, 2024. Now, Ms. Holland is revoking these issued by the Trump administration, and she claims to have the authority to cancel or suspend oil and gas leases issued in violation of a statute or regulation. She points to insufficient analysis under the National Environmental Policies Act. And this is what she's saying the deficiencies are. They did not act in the best available science and in recognition of the indigenous knowledge. Last year, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy issued a memo directing agencies to, quote, include indigenous knowledge as an aspect of the best available science, end quote. The memo encouraged agencies to consult spiritual leaders and condemn methodological dogma. The best available science is whatever the climate lobby's high priests declare. This is from an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal written by the editorial board. I don't know if this is a climate policy. I had to look twice to see if it was a satirical article written in the Onion, but I think it's very similar to what we're seeing out of Montana when we're taking in children's climate feelings before we make decisions on energy policy. I can promise you this, we will pay for this in the future at the pump and in higher oil prices. They want us to drill, drill, drill is what they've been telling the energy industry and the rest of America. Unfortunately, they don't want us to do it here. Moving on to gas prices. If we look in Newsweek, they had an article this week written by Julia Carbonaro about how gas prices have changed since Joe Biden took office. When he took office, they were about $240 a gallon, and now the average is just over $380 after reaching a peak of about $506 just last year in June. Now, very interesting thing happened in June of last year. That's when inflation peaked at 9.1%. Since that time, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was emptied by about 50%. These are the Strategic Petroleum Reserves that the country has set aside in case there's an issue. Emergency, national emergency, something happened with refining, and our country could still use this to 
tied us over until the emergency had passed. Now, however, we have dropped 50% of our strategic petroleum reserve. The Biden administration has said that they would start refilling this strategic petroleum reserve at $70. Well, when we got to $70, that didn't happen. Now, like I said, we're at $90. The gas price is peaking seasonally right now in September, when normally this is when we start seeing the gas prices start decreasing. Memorial Day, early summer is usually the peak. And then seasonally, it starts to drift off. They can switch from the summer gasoline to the winter gasoline. It's about 10, 20 cents cheaper. But this article goes through and talks about how because of the supply shortage, because we're not able to drill, this is some of the things that we're going to be seeing. So when they say that inflation is dropping, I don't see the gas price back to 240, which is when Biden started office. It's at 380. Dropping from a 506 high to 380 is still way higher than 240. And this is why the numbers that we've been looking at inflation are not the things we need to be looking at. We need to be looking at relative prices, which was 240 gas, which is what all of society has to pay. Every worker has to fill it up. Every person commuting, every person driving around has to fill up at 240. And now they're filling up at 380. That doesn't feel like 9% inflation and then 3% inflation. That is much, much larger. On Friday evening, there was an earthquake in Morocco. It struck the high Atlas Mountains and it was about 50 miles south of the town of Marrakesh. Buildings were flattened in the 6.8 magnitude quake and the casualties number is already over 1,000 and expected to rise. The only saving grace was this was largely in small villages and it didn't seem to be um, affecting a very large population center for the most part. Um, So in that way, it was a little bit fortunate, unlike the the things that are happening um, last, I think it was February in Turkey, which hit much more populated areas. However, the rebuild on this, these are many historic buildings, um, buildings that were just rubble, right? So there was no um, earthquake code being built into these buildings. There was no rebar. There was no flexing as things um, shook. This was just um, stone masonry that just got absolutely flattened. So we will keep an eye on this. Looking forward, I would like to bring an article to your attention, which was written by Shane Shiflett and Conrad Putzier in the Wall Street Journal about a Wall Street doom loop threatens America's banks. We haven't spoken about the banks here for a few months after the Silicon Valley Bank and First Reliance and some of those crashed and went bankrupt in um, April. And there was a couple more sales and we talked about a couple small, a small bank in Kansas um, getting taken over. But now we have another situation that was a problem then, but is now just continued to escalate. And here we are four or five months later. This article talks about Bank OZK, which is a large bank in Arkansas that is um, funding billions of dollars in commercial real estate real estate loans for properties in Miami and Manhattan, including luxury high end residential towers um, and then other commercial projects in those two locations. 
Now, Bank OZK has grown very, very quickly over the last two, three, four decades. They've taken over numerous banks. They've had very conservative banking practices. However, they are clogged right now with commercial real estate loans. That is exactly what was the fear of everybody as we look at this work from home, declining office vacancy or increasing office vacancies and some of these downtowns that are being hollowed out by work from home and by the jobs that are simply leaving these cities because of the policies of the people saying, hey, we're not going to go downtown. It's not safe. It's just an ugly situation right now. We've covered that in San Francisco, Portland, Chicago, etc. Another bank that they talked about in this was regional lender out of Buffalo, New York, M&T Bank. They reported that nearly 20% of loans to office landlords were at high risk of default. They have reduced their commercial real estate lending by 5%. 20% of their loans of office landlords were at higher risk of default. Now, I don't know what high is, and if it's simply higher, but it's a problem. The bank, this bank, M&T Bank, at the end of June, wrote off $127 million worth of loans for three offices and a healthcare facility in New York City and Washington, D.C. Shocking. New York City and Washington, D.C. It has unrealized losses on $2.5 billion worth of securities that are tied to loans for offices, apartments, and other commercial properties, according to the Wall Street Journal's analysis. M&T Bank declined to comment. This, I don't know how to say this without being too doom and gloomy. This is a problem that is just sitting there. And the only thing that will solve it is a Fed pivot. This is exactly what Barry, billionaire Barry Sternlicht and the bond king Jeffrey Gunlack and Elon Musk and all of these people, Kathy Wood, have, we've mentioned, all are begging for a Fed pivot. Oh, you shouldn't keep rates this far, this high, this long. This is going to create a problem. It's going to create a problem for all of you. Lowering the interest rate will accelerate inflation, which will hurt all of us. That's the dilemma that Jerome Powell is dealing with. He knows that if he doesn't pivot, these companies, these banks, these bondholders, all of these large investors are in real trouble. If he pivots, the rest of the world will look at us and say, oh my God, the U.S. is losing control of its spending, of its policies, of its interest rate, because the interest rate People will be like, we don't believe that you can control inflation any longer. And with the amount of money that you've printed, we think that you're going to have inflation for a very long time and we're not going to get paid back in cheaper dollars down the road. So we're going to charge, we're going to demand a much higher interest rate to buy your bonds. And if we can't sell bonds, we have a real governmental problem. So what does Jerome Powell do? Does he break the bond market, hurt the banks, maybe break some banks? Or does he hurt all of America and threaten social upheaval? Or does he stay higher for longer and slowly suck the life out of these banks? These banks that have grown ridiculously fast. I mean, the amount of assets that they've picked up in the last few years um, is just incredible, right? So 
commercial real estate prices jumped by 43% from 2015 to 2022, according to real estate firm Green Street. That allowed them to buy properties, make loans. They went up. They got to refinance them at higher levels, making more on their loans. And now we're seeing a real problem. Regulators have been warning banks about commercial real estate lending for years. In 2015, the country's banking regulators joined together to warn that high concentrations of commercial mortgages and poor risk management puts banks, quote, at greater risk of loss or failure, end quote. Centennial Bank, based in Conway, Arkansas, became a big funder of developers building luxury skyscrapers in New York and Miami. Construction loans are among the riskiest types of real estate lending. John Allison, chairman of the bank's holding company, Home Bank Shares, told the journal in late 2019 that the representatives from the Federal Reserve urged him to slow down the bank's lending. Quote, they're telling us the construction lending space is going to blow up and the world is coming to an end. End quote. Allison recalled, recalled, quote, and I said, you know what? I don't see it. End quote. Centennial continued increasing its construction loans, and although they grew more slowly than deposits during the pandemic, they didn't lose money yet, but it's out there. It's on their books. What happens if people start walking away from this? The banks have their noses wide open. We move on to another industry that seems to have its nose wide open as well. And by wide open, I mean wide open for a, a big punch <laughs> right in the nose that'll bloody their nose. So a couple weeks ago on Bygone Relics, we talked about the Swedish state energy giant Vattenfall that has abandoned plans to build a multi-billion pound wind farm off of Norfolk in the UK because of spiraling costs. And they said that due to this, they were pulling some of their investment in these projects uh, including the Norfolk Vanguard East and West wind farms, which are under scrutiny. They said that the government, quote, the government needs to step up with a robust response to enable industrial growth, end quote. <laughs> this is incredible. They're, they're saying we can't make money, so the government has to pay us. That's not how capitalism works in the UK, evidently. However, here at home, we have the same issue. If we look to this new company, the Danish company Orsted, the global leader in offshore wind development, said it expects to write down the value of U.S. projects by up to 6 billion Danish kroner, or about $860 million, due to higher costs driven by an inadequate supply chain in the U.S., higher interest rates, and insufficient federal subsidies. Their shares fell 25% last Tuesday and are down 41% on the year. It turns out that if the federal government doesn't pay for this, it doesn't work. It's like buying a Tesla. If you don't get that big $7,500 government tax credit, it's not a very competitive buy. Well, the same thing's going with this wind project. In the past year, Several on offshore wind projects along the East Coast have been delayed. In Massachusetts, developers of two projects expected to provide enough power for at least half a million homes have canceled their contracts this summer, citing escalating costs. 
This article from Barron's by Avi Selzman goes on to talk about how it is looking increasingly unlikely that the U.S. will be able to add 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power capacity by 2030, a goal President Biden announced in 2021. Rising interest rates threaten the valuation of existing wind projects. Block Island Wind Farm, one of only two existing offshore wind projects in the U.S., may also have to be impaired, the company said. Orsted is looking to the government, federal government for more support. Projects can now qualify for a tax subsidy of 30% of their investment, but they're lobbying for more. The problem with this is the other alternative. Other money for the projects might have to come from consumers in the form of higher electricity prices. There it is. CEO Mads Nipper recently told Bloomberg that he thinks electricity prices will have to rise to support offshore wind projects and help the U.S. decarbonize. Nipper says, quote, and if they don't, neither we nor any of our colleagues are going to build more offshore, end quote. It's very simple, he says. Some states, such as Rhode Island, have balked at approving contracts that are so expensive they could lead to considerably higher consumer electricity rates. We have been saying at the CTPC for quite some time, this is a technology that is not ready, it is not cost efficient, and what happens is when the government put these contracts out there, these people, like Mads Nipper, goes and bids on this stuff at a very low price. And then they turn around and say, oh, costs have went up. We have to have more money. And if we don't, we don't know if we can complete our part of the contract. This is no different than a contractor bidding a place. If you are a person that is building a home, the contractor bids you one price. And then all of a sudden, three months later, says, oh, costs are going up. I'm going to have to charge you more. And then you agree to this small change, and then three months later, here comes another change, and now we're going to have to do this, and now we're going to have to charge you more again. And this can, continues to go on and on and on, and then they go to the government, and they say, we need more tax subsidies. And then finally, guess who gets stuck paying the price? The homeowner, or in this case, the consumer of the electricity, which had a perfectly dependable, non-black outable for the most part, which isn't a word, but I'm going to create it here today. And it is a very dependable source of electricity, which is called the current grid in many cases outside of crazy states like California, who have rules and lawsuits against people that cause forest fires. Now, what happens in this situation for New England? They've spent all this money in this grid. Where has this money gone? Well, I get I'm going to guess that CEO Mads Nipper has got a very, very nice salary for the last two, three, four, five years since they signed this deal. Their stock had gone up for years and years, so they probably pocketed some pretty nice options, which they've sold. And all of this government money has found their way right into the pockets of these executives that are long on promise and short on deliver. Moving from one source of electricity to another, the utility stocks are getting slammed this year. Well, it's no wonder when they have so much competition from government-subsidized alternative sources of electricity. So if we look at the utility sector SPDR or SPIDER, the ticker is XLU, according to Barron's and Jacob Sonnenschein, 
The utility sector is down 12% during the past 12 months, and investors chasing high yield are into the AI space, and they have dumped them as they have chased yield in other areas. Now, any source of safety, utilities, which in this current environment are being treated like redheaded stepchildren, it seems weird that the high dividend yields are less attractive. But here's here's the kicker. More recently, wildfires in Hawaii and elsewhere, think California, have raised the possibility of legal liabilities for utility companies, another pressure point on their shares. Now, if we allow utility companies to be sued for all of the forest fires that result, what that means is their lawyers are going to tell the utility companies whenever it gets hot, and windy, just turn the power off. Now, is that the time that you want to be without power? If every time there's an ice storm that comes in that could snap branches off down power lines, cause problems, do you want them to just turn the power off? Well, this is the problem, right? So the concerns about the utilities are overblown and their earnings could be much stronger than expected, according to the Barron's article. They're adding clean energy power plants faster than their retiring old ones, and this allows them to grow their rate base, a boon for profits, because states typically allow them to earn a fixed return on the equity of those new assets. So as they're investing in this cleaner energy power, there's an opportunity for these companies to make more money and pass those fees along. So they're being rewarded for the capital investment that meets the goals of cleaner energy. So one of the things that we should start looking at is these um, these utilities and say, hmm, at what point do we think they are oversold? What point do we think that they are someplace where you can park some money? Well, it's very interesting, but anytime you have something like this, that's usually a very big safety sector of the economy that you can invest in during really tough times. And now they're undersold or oversold and they're under value. This is the place that we can look for potential yield should this economy hit the skids someday. Thank you for tuning in this week. And remember, as Betty Davis once said, There are new words now that excuse everybody. Give me the old days of heroes and villains, the people you can bravo or hiss. There was a truth to them that all the slick credulity of today cannot...